I'm David Garofalo, Chairman and CEO of Gold Royalty Corp, GROY on the New York Stock Exchange, one of the newest entries into the gold royalty space. Having launched back in March through an IPO and then quadrupling in size through the acquisition of three of our competitors in the space. David, lovely to meet you. Our first time we've met and spoken, so I'm, I'm delighted to uh, be talking to you. Um, why don't you start off with a little bit about your background and what gives you the right to be starting up brand new royalty companies? <laughs> well, I actually came from an operating mind development background, even though I'm a, a chartered professional accountant by training, uh, spent over 30 years developing and operating minds in various roles. Uh, most recently, I was the CEO of Gold World, uh, Gold Corp, excuse me, prior to its merger with Newmont in 2019. Before that, I ran HUD Bay Minerals on the base metal side. And, and before that, I spent 12 years as CFO of Ignico Eagle during its formative years and then started my career before that, eight years with Inmet Mining on the base metal side. So I spent equal amounts of my career, both on the base and precious side, but uh, the recurring theme for me has been mine development. I've been involved in the construction of 15 mines in my career and operated countless more um, in various C-suite executive roles. Okay, so it's really important that uh, in the royalty space, streaming space, that you do good deals, that you're not overpaying for these things. So tell me a little bit about the team that sits behind you and the transactional experience. Well, we actually have quite a deep management board. Uh, many of them have been in the operating and mine development side uh, for much of their career. Um, within my board, I have Alan Hare, who was my successor at HUD Bay as CEO, but he was my chief operating officer and a prolific mine builder in his own right, 35 years as a mineral processing engineer. Um, we have Ian Telfer as the chairman of our advisory board. Um, Ian obviously pioneered the streaming model with Wheat and Precious Metals 15 years ago when he spun that out of Gold Corp. And the structure we're pursuing, spinning it out from gold mining, it is very similar um, in terms of its uh, formation as, as uh, Wheat and Precious Metals uh, was. And so we're leveraging uh, uh, Ian's expertise and his background, his experience in creating this vehicle and, and growing it very, very quickly. But if you look further on to the board, um, we have uh, Warren Gilman, who owns Queens World Capital out of Hong Kong, over 30 years of investment and investment banking experience in the space and, and have been a, a close personal friend of mine and Ian's over, over 30 years. He was one of the cornerstone investors in the company and unusually for him, uh, he became a, a member of the board of directors um, of an investing company, which is very, very rare for him. But again, um, he saw the potential um, in this vehicle, and also he wanted to be more directly involved with Ian and myself. Uh, Amir Adnani, who founded our former parent company, Gold Mining's on the board as well. They still have 14% of the company after these mergers, so one of our biggest shareholders. Um, and uh, Garnick Dawson, who's the former CEO of Gold Mining, geologist by training. Alistair Still, who's our director of technical services and is also the CEO of Gold Mining Inc., um, is a geologist by training uh, himself, a very experienced operator, having worked in the Porcupine District in Ontario for Gold Corp. And then after that, building Serenago in Argentina. So if anything, the recurring theme within our board is a technical skewing towards, uh, towards more technical and geological depth on our board. And I think that gives us a competitive advantage in a couple of ways. We have a clear-eyed view of the underlying risks of the opportunities we're looking at. We do a bottom-up analysis through our due diligence on the geological model, uh, the, the mine plans, the, the quality of the operators before we invest any dollars. But also given the seniority of our, our management board, what that gives us is access. Um, there isn't a company in the world or an executive in the world that one of us can't call to get access to opportunities. And admittedly, the royalty space is quite competitive. And in order to get that leg up, 
getting involved in bilateral negotiations before they become competitive processes is an extremely important uh, factor in making sure that we get an adequate rate of return on the capital we allocate. Okay, so the diligence side of things is pretty solid. You, you, you know, you're dropping names there everywhere, you know, blue chip names. Um, with regards to, so in terms of your ability to assess whether projects assets are, are good enough for your portfolio, you think you've, you you can tick that box. With regards to actually the construction of those deals, yeah, I guess you're reliant on one guy to get that right for you. So do you think that you've had to overpay initially for the transactions that you've done to get the scale or do, and you'll recoup, you'll recoup and uh, you know back backfill later on, or do you think you've actually bought well? Not we haven't overpaid at all. And I think the advantage we had is in each of these opportunities we've acquired, whether it was Ely, whether it was the package of royalties from Monarch, uh, whether it was the three-way merger with Abitibi and Golden Valley. Uh, we leveraged relationships we had in our board management to get bilateral and exclusive access to these opportunities. We allocate capital expecting to get at least double digit rates of return. And we're quite confident we're going to get that in these cases. Not only that, in terms of the known reserves, but we see significant expiration upside in each of the opportunities we invested in. We haven't paid for that expiration upside. That's gravy, that's icing on the cake. And if we realize that expiration potential, that's the optionality that investors are looking for when they're buying a royalty and streaming company. It's, it's a difficult one for uh, royalty companies because these portfolios are hawked around by the banks. And the winner is always going to be accused of overpaying because you paid more than the last guy typically, well, the, the, the next best bid. So do you believe what you're saying there about not overpaying? Or do you think there's got to be a little bit of it? Yeah, in fact, these were not peddled by banks. And, and, and that's the point I'm trying to make is given the seniority of our team, we got access to these opportunities before they were peddled in competitive processes. You know, in, in the example of Ely, even before our IPO, I had established a relationship with Trey Wasser, one of the co-founders of Ely. And we entered into negotiations before we even went public. We were debating whether we were going to merge prior to our IPO and use Ely as our vehicle to go public. But you know, Trey and his board wanted us to go through a price discovery process on our existing portfolio that we inherited from gold mining. So we did that. We established the value in the marketplace and that allowed us to, to enter into a basis of negotiation. Similarly, with Golden Valley and Abitibi, uh, we had a relationship through our board with Jimmy Lee, uh, the largest shareholder of gold mining. He's a pulp and paper magnet based out of Dubai. And again, I entered into a discussion with him through that relationship. He did not market this to anybody else. And we convinced him of the double bump potential of merging with us. In other words, uh, delivering him a premium upfront, but also re-rating his portfolio, which was in a very illiquid public company, re-rating his portfolio within uh, the, the new gold royalty. And in fact, we realized that 35% a value accretion as a result of that merger, even post the payment of that premium. So the market, I think, has delivered its verdict. They feel that we paid fair value. In fact, we rated that portfolio quite dramatically within the combined company. But you, you know why I'm asking the questions? Because you know most brokers, most investors don't have the capacity to review with diligence an entire portfolio. There's a, there's a lot of work there, right? So they take what the company says at face value. And so that's why I'm asking you these questions because again, if I look at some of the, the, the three acquisitions, they've got very, very different beginnings and very different profiles themselves. So you've had to say, what's the commonality here for us? Is it the fact that it gives us scale quickly? You may not feel that you've overpaid and that, and that's fine. You stated your case, but 
the, they came from different places. You've got to try. You've got to. You've, and, and 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 I guess the saving grace is that no one's going to overanalyze these too much. So, what do you think you need to do with those portfolios to enhance the value going forward? Well, quite quite uh, quite uh, simply, it's to to basically. Uh, continue to support those acquisitions. If they require additional capital, we're there to provide capital, we're there to provide support uh, to these opportunities. But by and large, virtually everything we bought is already well capitalized. We have very, very strong operating partners. They already have the financial wherewithal to advance these projects. I'll give you an example. When we bought Abitibi in Golden Valley, we got a royalty on at least a part of Canadian Lauric, the largest producing gold mine in Canada with two well capitalized operating partners in Ignico Eagle and Yamana, they're already undertaking a $1.6 billion underground mine construction on that project. And that trends into 3% NSR ground that we have royalties on. And so that is well underway, construction is underway, the head frames up, it's a concrete head frame, you're sinking a shaft. Um, this is an area that Ignico has been operating in since its inception back in the 1950s, so knows it well has the people that they can leverage, has the infrastructure, it's right on the Trans-Canada Highway. They don't need a lot of support. What they need to do is get underground access, not only for production, but also get the underground drill sit-ups. They really need to test the depth potential of that underground deposit. So just by holding on to that royalty and partnering with strong operating partners like that, that gives us significant optionality on the exploration potential of the underground deposit at Canadian Lorik, which up to this point has been exclusively an open pit operation. Right, and I do want to talk about the construct of the portfolio because with all, with all portfolio sales, there's going to be good stuff and not so good stuff, right? So let's talk about how much money have you raised to date and how much of that have you spent? So we raised $90 million US in our IPO. Um, we used about two thirds of that to complete the acquisition of Ely. It was about one third cash, two thirds paper. Um, but since then, we kind of reloaded with the Abitibi and Golden Valley acquisition. We've actually brought our cash balance up to close to $50 million US on a pro forma basis having just completed that deal formally uh, just a few days ago. And so we're well loaded in terms of our cash. We have an underdrawn credit line of $25 million and we have no debt on the balance sheet. So uh, among that third tier of royalty companies, um, which includes ourselves and Mavericks and a number of smaller cap players, we have the strongest balance sheet with the highest cash balance. We also have the largest royalty portfolio uh, with over 190 royalties from early stage expiration through to production. We have the best asset concentration in terms of jurisdiction risk. We have 75% of our portfolio on an NEV basis in Nevada and Quebec, the two best rated jurisdictions by the Fraser Institute for mineral potential, low regulatory risk, and low political risk. Otherwise, we're exclusively focused in the Americas. And the other thing I would point out is nearly 90% of our exposure, our attributable resources are in gold. We're very focused, we're not in bulks, we're not in battery metals. We're not in exotic minerals. I think it's been empirically demonstrated time and again that the companies that focus on precious metals on the royalty side get the best multiples and lowest cost of capital. They, they do, and that's why most most people end up there, or most people start there. Um, let, let, let's so let's stick with the portfolio thing. You, I'm trying to understand. You you described a kind of you know generic view of what what the portfolios look like, right? But it comes down to, and the cash position is great. You've got to raise a lot of money and you've made some, some big acquisitions, but it comes down to how much revenue do you generate? So in, in sense of where you're at today with revenue generation and near term, and I'm, a near term for me would be say money coming in, in the, converting into money in the next two years or so. 
What guidance are you giving to the market? Yeah, so we expect to generate about $5 million of free cash flow in our first full fiscal year uh, coming up in 2022. And we expect a five-fold increase in that free cash flow over the next five years, uh, largely from existing operations, whether it's Jerry Canyon, uh, whether it's Canadian Malaric, uh, among others. We have six producing royalties uh, that generate all of that cash flow. Beyond that, we see actually quite dramatic growth because we have seven projects in the construction stage, including the underground mine at Canadian Malaric, which again, trends into much higher NSR territory for us. And as they delineate that resource, as has been the custom geologically in that Abitibi Greenstone Belt, as you get that under, underground access and those drill setups to drill out the exploration potential at depth, these deposits tend to bloom and, and, and blossom geologically. Um, and I'll give you an example. You know, I was at Ignico for 12 years when we were building La Ronde, Lapa, and Goldex. And without exception, as we got underground access, these deposits grew exponentially. And La Ronde, many people forgot, started off as a small localized zinc deposit from surface drilling. On that basis, we sank a thousand meter shaft and that opened up underground drill horizons. That small localized zinc deposit has become the largest gold bearing BMS ever discovered um, in history worldwide. Um, and again, started with a modest zinc deposit from surface. It's that underground uh, potential, that underground um, access that's really critical in this greenstone belt to discovering ultimately what you have geologically. Absolutely. But that's not going to happen 190 times for you. So I want to focus on the ones that you think are most likely. Okay. So can I just be clear about something? You just said you took about five, five, five million of revenue next year and maybe five mm -hmm. times that within the next five years. Is that from those same six current producing or are you including the seven development projects too? Plus some of those seven that are in construction. Got it. So to be clear, that does not include Odyssey because Odyssey within the next five years won't be at full ramp up production. So that provides another dimension of growth beyond the five year horizon um, that I'm talking about. I'm talking about just the ones that are either in production or likely to be in production within the next three to five years. It'll deliver that growth. Gotcha. So just in, just in, okay. So in terms of materially advanced projects, then how many of those have got you know stock exchange compliant forty three one hundred ones or jokes, depending on where where they are? Well, all, all thirteen six in production and seven in construction have forty three one hundred one resources. Right. And if you look at our overall portfolio, there's almost eighty million ounces of attributable resource or, or overall resources that we're exposed to as a result of our, our royalty uh, portfolio. And that's 43101 resource. And I, it's an aggregation of all the resources on the 191 royalties that have 43101 compliant reserves and resources. Okay, so in terms of the total port, the total royalty portfolio, how many of them have exactly. that? Is it just those 13? No, no, I, I'm talking about if you look at the overall portfolio. Overall, right, about, got it. ounces of attributable gold resource within that overall portfolio. Within the 13, I haven't uh, segregated that 13, but all of those 13 have 43101 compliant resources. How much of that 80 million? I, I don't know off the top of my head, but they are they are all 43101 compliant. Okay, so I'm just trying to break down what that means. So in, in terms of trying to understand what's your gold equivalent royalty linked reserves and resources there, is, are you able to split that out for me? Well, what in, in terms of the 13 or are you, are you Well, just more? just more, more broadly in terms of the near term. Obviously, like I say, like you, you know and I yeah. know, not all of the 190 are going to make it into production, right? So you, you, it's a question I'm trying to focus right. on what you know today, what you hope and what may be versus, and there'll be some which will just fall by the wayside. And that's fine. That's what happens. But I'm just going to get a near term view of, of, you know, where the potential revenue numbers could go if all goes well and money's available. 
and precious metal markets kind of recover a little bit. What's the well, I think a big driver beyond the next five years is how much they delineate uh, underground at, right. at Odyssey as they get that underground drill set up. That's where we see the significant optionality and upside potential. Within that 80 million ounces, as I said, I I, I can't subset the, the 13. Okay, no, fair enough. It, no, it's hard. It's, no, that's fair but enough. But it's a significant component of the 80 million ounces for sure. Right. And so, so you've got those 13. So do you think there will be an opportunity for, forget the organic component, I'll come back to that, but do you think there'll be other projects that could come into the, you know, move into the development phase in the next couple of years? Yeah, I'll give you a couple of examples um, that are not included in the 13ers. For example, Fenelon, Wallbridge's yep. uh, project. Yeah. And uh, Fenelon is actually publishing its initial resource this week. I mean, I some accounts in that three to five million ounce range. We haven't seen that number yet. That's not in the 13. That's not in development stage at this stage. That provides further upside potential. Another example is REN, which is the underground extension of Gold Strike, which we have a royalty on. Um, you, and if you saw Barrick's uh, quarterly conference call last week, that figured prominently um, in their longer term plans uh, within Gold Strike. And so they're studying the potential of integrating that within their 10 year mine plan. That's not been incorporated in those 13 projects either. So those provide another dimension of growth beyond the 13 that I talked about a little earlier on. Right. Okay. And you talked about the, the, the reach and con the connections that your board and advisory board has um, are you are you talking to any you know private operator companies or is it all going to be in the public domain? No, we, we are we're doing both, um, but uh, up to this point, it has been public companies uh, for the most part. Within the 191 royalties, I know there are some private privately owned uh, properties because a number of those royalties came through our organic generative model uh, that we inherited from both Ely and Golden Valley. In the case of uh, Ely, uh, Jerry Boffman, who was one of the co-founders of Ely, still with us um, in Nevada doing that generative uh, program where he stakes exploration properties, farms them out to explorers, and then takes royalties back. It's a very low capital uh, intensity way to generate royalties. Glenn, Glenn Mullen over at uh, uh, Golden Valley has joined our board and joined our, our management team as well. And he's he's done exactly the same thing in Ontario and Quebec uh, for for you know for considerable success over a number of years. So we'll continue to do that. So there's still lots of opportunity for us to generate organically uh, royalty opportunities within our portfolio. Okay. Okay. And beyond that, you know, you know, earlier this year we did a, a deal with Monarch Resources. Now that's in the public domain. Uh, to your to your question earlier on. Jean-Marc Lacoste has been operating the Abitibi Greenstone Belt, much like I have for most of my career. And, and there's a level of trust there. Again, another bilateral opportunity through my relationship with Jean-Marc uh, allowed us to acquire those royalties to fund the restart of Beaufort, uh, which will be cash flowing next year. Okay. And are you concerned at all about the value the that, that the market has put on your company? You know, five, 5 million revenue next year isn't a lot. There's a lot of a lot smaller companies than you managing to do that. And you know, ramping up to 25 over the next five years, it does. It, it kind of feels like you kind of got to backfill your valuation, don't you? No, not at all. I mean, you know, look, Franco Nevada trades at about 100 times cash flow. <laughs> I mean, the reality is people buy uh, royalty companies for a particular reason. One is it's a low risk uh, uh, opportunity to, to drive leverage to the gold price. And in other words, you get that top line exposure, leverage to both the gold price, but also the expiration success of the operators as they drill out their existing deposits, grow them geologically, but also you insulate shareholders from operating capital cost inflation. I think that's why typically 
royalty companies get the premium valuations they do, have the low cost of capital, and they are a very effective conduit to capital to the explorers and developers who otherwise might not be able to access capital uh, from traditional equity markets um, in a cost-effective manner. Okay. Okay. In, 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 ter- in terms of that uh, five times number, say 25 million in five years time, what, what does that cash gr- uh, growth profile look like? Is it front-ended or is it back-ended? Uh, you mean intra-year or are you talking well, about- Well, I'm, I'm, t- I'm talking about, okay, you, you're talking about Italy five times five in five years time. It's actually quite, quite a steady upward trajectory um, right. in terms of because we have a number of projects legging in. It's not back into the five years. Every year we have significant growth. And the beauty of our businesses, in cases for many royalty and streaming companies, is virtually all of our revenue goes right to the bottom line because we have a very small GNA footprint. I have a half a dozen employees, including myself, and we could run a company 10 times the size of what we have today with the same human footprint. No, I, I understand that. Well, again, one of the benefits of royalty companies, big, big fan of royalties. Um, so just again, so in, in terms of how you're measuring that, um, that, that cash growth profile, are you, how much of that is based on reserves today versus resource? Resource, you know, I think everyone understands. You know, we only, we only base our cash flow projections on proven and probable reserves. Got it. Um, okay. Any- any benefit above that, again, is provides that optionality. So we're very, very conservative in our cash flow projections um, when we do them. And, and for that matter, when we're doing evaluations, it's, it's to return on potential royalty acquisitions. Again, we only base it on 43-101 reserve. That's all we pay. You know, We can't afford to pay for that upside because if you do that, you're foregoing that optionality that investors are looking for in royalty companies. They want that upside without having to pay for it up front. Got it. Okay. So in, ter- in terms of how, how you measure the duration of the cash flow, then I guess the answer is, that would answer that question. Um, fine. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, organic versus M&A. You've been heavy, hot and heavy on the M&A. Are we expecting to see more of that? Or are you now going to sit back and uh, rely on some of the acquisitions that you've made to you know, you know develop the projects? And that's where your growth is coming from. Well, I think the most effective royalty companies have never far, foregone any of those options. Um, they've always maintained uh, an open mind to doing deals that are creative, uh, regardless of where they come from. The beauty of our model is we have a sustainable business that will grow for the foreseeable future, given that generative model that we've acquired through the acquisition of Ely and Golden Valley. Uh, we kept the founders on. Uh, they're, pers- they're prolific prospectors who've done a tremendous job of generating dozens and dozens of royalties that we have within our portfolio organically uh, through their grassroots exploration efforts, through their staking, farming out, and taking those royalties back. So that aspect of our business will provide organic growth for the foreseeable future. But really, it's it's incumbent upon us uh, and and our shareholders expect us to look for opportunities from every avenue that you mentioned. So if I I look at um, like Glenn's project, Golden Valley, you know, they, they have a technical problem to overcome. Um, you know, and, and I, I think, like, think, I hope they've, they've got that. Was I mean, did things like that put you off, or are you happy to take a little bit of risk on some of these acquisitions that you're making, and assume that the management team will be able to solve the problem? What do you, what you basically, what I'm saying is, yeah, asset risk versus management risk. You know, what, what, what's important to you? Well, well, I mean, that's again, that's the beauty of the depth of our, our management board is we've been in their shoes. We understand the underlying risk of what they're trying to do, and we price it accordingly. Um, so we we feel that something has a significant risk associated with the development, capital expenditures, with the resource, then we'll attribute the appropriate risk premium and our rate of return and our hurdle rates for these projects. Otherwise, we won't get involved. 
And as in more than a few times, we passed on opportunities because we didn't believe in the underlying operators uh, development plans. We didn't believe they had the wherewithal, the financial capacity, or they didn't have the ESG practices that made us comfortable. That's absolutely intrinsic to everything we do. We want people that actually have a track record of responsible development from a social uh, safety and environmental side. And I can think of a half a dozen opportunities, individual work opportunities we've passed on since uh, we started this organization back in March and went public because we didn't have that underlying comfort in the operators and their ability to do business responsibly. Okay. And, and what about, I would say that it's been a difficult, I mean, you started in a difficult year. I was a downer pressure on precious metals across the board. Um, the, the gold price, not so much actually, but the, 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 it, on the equity side of things, which has, you know, restricted some people's ability to earn uh, sorry, to go and raise capital to advance the projects, to do the drilling at the speed that they wanted to. And obviously, assays have been affected by COVID. Look, there's a few things going on out there. It's made it a sort of difficult trading environment. Does that concern you at all? Or is it because it's royalty, it's, it's a long-term play and it doesn't really matter? It is a long-term play, but I, I think we're at an interesting point in the cycle. Um, and, and I really didn't address this earlier on, but why did I switch from being an operator for over 30 years to running a royalty company? Because I think we're at the point of the cycle we were at 10 years ago where we went through a period of underinvestment and then there was a catch-up trade in the mining space, both on the base and precious side, where there was a massive amount of investment in new mine capacity. That happened 10 years ago. And what we saw was massive input cost inflation as a result of that, where we've gone through about a half a dozen years of what I would characterize as a nuclear winter for mine building. There hasn't been any massive mine construction of any type in either base or precious side. So there is going to be a, an element of catch-up over the coming years as people look to replace depleting reserves and production profiles, both on the base and precious side, that'll translate to in, into input cost inflation. I think it's going to be vastly amplified over what we saw 10 years ago, because 10 years ago, we didn't have inflation in the general economy. Today, we do. I would argue it's double digit. And I think we're going to have massive cost inflation. So I think if you want leverage the gold price and gold will do very well in that inflationary environment, you want to be involved in a royalty company that insulates you from input cost inflation, both on the capital and operating cost side. That's why I'm at this point in the cycle. And actually, it's a much more uh, receptive environment uh, for royalty companies and streaming companies than it is for operators. That's why we've seen, seen a steady degradation in multiples and the mine operating side over the last year or so, even though the gold price has been quite robust. Yeah, no, well, I, I'd, I'd agree with that. Um, and people, more people are looking to it. But it, it's also about how the companies define how they want to be measured and how they want to be judged. You know, you've got earnings, uh, cash flow accretive deals versus PNAV, multiple accretive deals out there. And, you know, you need to be careful about how, how, how you define yourself. So some people are doing it and playing the market and some people are trying to create, you know, genuine value. So how do you want to be measured? Well, I, throughout my career, all I've focused on is net asset value per share growth. Um, that's really what it's about at the end of the day. Um, if you're not growing the value of your business and you're not really running a business, you're running a momentum play. And that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to build a sustainable business. That's when I, we acquired Ely and Golden Valley and Abitibi. We acquired a skill set that we frankly didn't have within the organization. Um, you, you, you can see it's a very top heavy organization with a lot of capital markets and mine building expertise, what we didn't have was that grassroots element that would generate royalties organically. And by acquiring um, the skills that we did and Trey and Jerry and Glenn, we have that generative platform now that will sustain us for decades to come. Uh, beyond just doing M&A and acquiring individual royalties, we can generate them ourselves and have a very robust pipeline for the foreseeable future. Okay, so if I look at cash and cash returns, what, 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 oh, sorry, 
Let's talk about cash and cash returns. What what do you think? What would you expect your IRR uh, to be using, you know, the consensus pricing and current reserve life or, or resource life or however you want to measure it? I can say unequivocally, every investment we've made um, based on proven or probable reserves, uh, it will generate a double digit rate of return. Right now, as for the grassroots opportunity, uh, what does that mean? Does that, does that mean? Low teens, does it mean? ten percent. Double digit means 10% or greater. I know that. Okay. I know that. I'm trying to work out, do you mean 30 or do you mean 11? <laughs> well, well I, each of these individual row opportunities are a bit different. I, I, I haven't aggregated them across the portfolio, right. but okay. what I would say is on a grassroots basis, those grassroots opportunities that we're generating, they're undefinable in terms of return, but because our, our investment in those is virtually zero. You know, staking expiration claims is the salary I pay, pay Jerry and, and, and Glenn on a monthly basis. They stake those expiration claims. And before any significant expenditures are required on those properties, we farm them out to people that actually want to put the capital into the ground to drill them out. And we take a royalty back. So they cost us next to nothing other than the small amount of overhead we incur in having Gene and, and Jerry and, and, um, and Glenn in our employ. And so those provide almost infinite rates of return. You know, if ultimately they've come to fruition and there's a reserve and a resource and they ultimately get built out. And that's certainly been the case with Canadian Malarctic. People forget that it was Glenn that actually staked that property up in the first place and mended it into Cisco. What kind of rate of return did he have on that investment? Yeah, I'd say it's almost infinite. Um, so that's the opportunity we see in having that generative platform and having that skill set with decades and decades of experience embedded in that group. Yeah, no, I, I get it. It's, some will be hits and, and some won't, and sometimes you get it right and very right, and, and, and other times you don't, experience or not, right? So, but what, I, what, I, what you just said to me is you're not, you haven't quite done the work to, work to be able to answer the question of what the expected IRR is yet. So it brings me to a question. Oh, I have looked at any individual royalty opportunity. I, I could wax poetic about okay. our rate of return, expected rate of return on each of those opportunities. And as, as I said, each and every one of them is double digit. Okay, um, so, can, so we, can we- That's using consensus gold price, which is 1650 an ounce long-term. And that's based on 43101 reserve by, for each of these projects and, and opportunities and portfolio assets we've added in uh, since we- uh, we conceived the company back in the Okay, March. but you haven't amortized it. Is that better, you're more comfortable with me saying that? You haven't amortized that yet. You haven't worked out what the blended number is, right? So, um, because, you know, once you've done that, you're saying individually, you said, yeah, the prices paid are sustainable. They, it, it, we're happy with what we paid for those, right? Yes. Okay, cool. Um, so in terms of, if you haven't done the amortization number, then it's going to be hard to answer the next question, which was really around, um, you know, you know, what are you trading at versus, versus your cash flow? Um, what's the payback time? And, you know, are you going to be able to give us a book or some, some sort of guidance as sure, to what sure. you? No, I mean, well, let's talk about P and AB multiples. I mean, okay, there are please. three distinct tiers in the space. Okay, and they're the category killers. You know, those that's Franco, Wheat and Precious Metals, Royal Gold, and they're trading. Let's call them Tier One, and they're trading typically at two to three times NAD. Then there's the rest of us. There's Tier Two, which is Sandstorm, Osisco, Triple Flag, that one to two billion dollar category, and then there's everybody else, sub one billion dollar market cap category. Let's call them Tier Three for argument's sake, with us and Mavericks at the very top of that tier, with the potential, I think, for each of us to graduate into the second tier. I would say the rest of them are congregated somewhere in that 0.9 to 1.25 times P to NAV. 
that's a lot of real estate between where the rest of us are and the category killers are. And I'm not going to pretend that we're going to trade a two, three times NEV, but in de-risking the asset base that we have, advancing that and realizing that potential, that optionality that I talked about a little earlier on, we see the potential to close some of that gap. There's a significant re-rate opportunity embedded in our portfolio, given the scale and diversity of it and the various stages, how well balanced the portfolio is from early stage exploration through to feasibility, through to mine development, through to operation. We have a very, very well balanced portfolio that provides that kind of optionality and that re-rate potential to close that gap between the big guys and the rest of us. Okay, fine. So you, the end part of the question was, you know, can you give us some guidance and also help people understand you know, what the payback time is on each of the projects that you want us to be looking at now and give us a sense of you know, when things are coming down the line. Is there a time, timeline or something? 190 is a lot, right? It's a lot of information to digest. I, I wouldn't sure. for one second think about trying to do diligence on every single one of those, but I need to know what to focus on, what's important, what's going to drive the next five year. You know, is that coming? Well, what I certainly already gave you some examples like Odyssey and, and Rand and Fenelon. Uh, Jared Canyon is under new stewardship with First Majestic, and, and they're recapitalizing that mine both operationally, but from an exploration standpoint, they've ramped up the exploration there. So there's a, a lot of brownfield potential that we think in the short to medium term will be integrated into the mine plan and enhance our, our royalty there as an example. Uh, so there, there are multiple examples that I've run through here where I think we actually have significant organic growth without having to go and acquire anything well beyond that five-fold increase that I talked about our cash flow just on, based on current proven or probable reserves and things that are in construction and development or already have committed capital and operators are committing resources to bringing these projects into fruition. Right. Okay. And because, because part of, part of that would be, you know, trying to get, you, you said you've got a great team who've got a track record of running, mining, uh, producing all good stuff, but be great if you could share with us some of that, some of that analysis. We understand that, you know, what the numbers actually relate to. Cause sometimes we have royalty companies come on here, talk about companies, which they don't, the, 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 the mining company is not actually, producing on their royalty claim. It's just a kind of generic, well, they'll eventually get around to it kind of conversation. And, and all that kind of detail is really important. You know, you've done the work. It'd be great to, if you could share that with us. Is, 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 so again, to reiterate, um, Canadian Malaric has been run by Ignito and Yamana. Mm -hmm. um, that they've invested 1.6, they are investing $1.6 billion committed towards the construction of an underground mine there, uh, transitioning from the open pit to underground. There's a four plus million ounce reserve on that property underground. It hasn't been fully delineated yet. They're going straight from PA to construction to operation on that. And as they get the underground drill setups, we see significant potential on 3% NSR territory for our cash flows to expand dramatically. We, with what we know today, we expect to see a dramatic increase in cash flows there. That's very tangible <laughs> where you have Two very well capitalized operators have committed $1.6 billion towards its development. It's not theoretical. It'll deliver meaningful cash flow growth for the foreseeable future and will be our gold strike. As gold strike is to Franco, Nevada, Canadian Malaric is to us. It's a foundational asset that will generate an annuity for our shareholders for decades to come. I've talked about Fenelon, which will have its initial resource this week. Um, most analysts are projecting somewhere between three to five million ounces. Now, Wallbridge will have to define a development plan for that. 
That's beyond the five-year horizon that I was talking about earlier on. REN, go, again, run by Barrick, is this underground extension of Gold Strike, uh, which will be integrated uh, by Barrick's own admission within their 10-year mine plan. Uh, they're still drilling that out. They see significant upside potential. It's an underground stick extension of the prolific Gold Strike project. And again, that's beyond the five years and has significant optionality in that. Jerry Canyon, as I said, first Majestic, new operator, recapitalizing the operation and also increasing the exploration program quite significantly. We've already incorporated Jerry Canyon's uh, cash flows within our five-year projection based on current reserves and resources or current proven or probable reserves. Beyond that, anything uh, First Majestic discovers to expand uh, this deposit provides that optionality, that further upside. Those are some very tangible examples. We yeah. have 191 royalties. I, I guess I could wax poetic for the next several hours. So sure. you ask for very tangible examples and I'm giving them to you. And I think I'm, I feel like I'm repeating myself, but that's the, those are exactly the types of opportunities we have in this portfolio. It's hard to argue with that quality proposition given the quality of the operators the locational advantage we have, the geological potential within the two most prolific gold districts in the world, and the two lowest political risk jurisdictions, and the two best rated jurisdictions in the world where we have a significant concentration of our asset base. Okay, look, I heard you both times. I heard you. What I'm getting at is an asset handbook coming down the line for shareholders or prospective shareholders, yes or no? It's in our it's in our corporate presentation. And if you look at the appendix, we've actually laid out many of those assets that we think ones that need to be highlighted right now. Mm. Admittedly, there's within that 191 royalty portfolio, there's a significant number of royalties that are relatively early stage, but about a quarter of our underlying net asset value is in production. And almost another quarter is in development. So it's a good balance in terms of the underlying value of the overall and the value proposition of our overall portfolio. But there are many, many royalties within that. And I've tried to highlight some of the key ones, I think, within the, within the portfolio that are going to be contributing meaningfully in the short to medium term. Okay. I've looked at some of the information there. It'd just be interesting to see if you could expand the, the information that made available on each of those. I guess that's what I'm, what I'm, what I'm trying to say. But it, um, enough of that. I'm looking at your marketing and your sell side broker r reports and um, the coverage that you've got, I should say. It, it, it's, it's great. You come out of the gate really, really strong. I guess the, the, the CVs um, on the board have, have ensured that. You're coming into quite a crowded market. Quite, you know, it, it is. You've got lots of new entrants into, into the marketplace at the moment. You've been very, very aggressive with your marketing. I think there's a couple of companies probably suffering from the fact that you're, you're, you're marketing and probably um, cannibalizing some of their shareholder base, quite, quite frankly, from, from well, what it looks like. Do you think that this space is going to need to see some mergers? Uh, acquisitions uh, coming together because there's too, just too many people here at the moment? Well, uh, as a company that's absorbed three of our peer companies this year in six months, I, I'd say yes. I, this was definitely a sector that was ripe for consolidation. There are too many companies in that third tier that I, I defined a little earlier on. They're frankly zombies. Um, they trade by appointment, literally tens of thousands of dollars a day of trading. Uh, that's like being in a roach motel if you're an investor. It's easy to get in, but almost impossible to get out and realize any value. Uh, what we've been able to do in very short order is, uh, is, is launch a company that actually trades almost $5 million a day um, with a market cap of over $700 million US. 
in one of the deepest capital markets in the world on the NYSE, um, it, accessing non-traditional sources of capital. I, I think I dispute uh, the assertion that we're actually uh, taking capital away or taking shareholders away from existing royalty companies. I think, in fact, we've tapped into a vein that, frankly, uh, most of the Canadian royalty companies simply haven't gone into before. We, haven't, we don't even have a Canadian listing. We've gone to non-traditional sources of capital, people that believe in gold as an asset class, but are looking for exposure without the underlying risk associated with input costs and looking for trading liquidity, which we've been able to provide in shorter through achievement of, of scale on, on an expedited basis. So yes, there's room for consolidation. Um, there's still too many players in the space that frankly can't grow because they can't access capital cost effectively. And if they can't access capital, they can't do deals, they can't achieve scale. What we're hoping to do is create a bit of a virtuous cycle. Um, if we are able to access capital and put that capital to work, expecting to get double digit rates of return, that'll attract more capital and that'll allow us to continue to grow. That's certainly how Franco Nevada and Wheaton and Royal Gold have been able to sustain success over such a long period of time is they continually increase the scale of the company by continually growing their business. Yeah, and I'd like, I agree with you on that. I think there's a lot of small companies that perhaps have come in, taken advantage of the movement in the marketplace and then found it one difficulty, um, Acquire anything, and and um, and also raise the money to be able to do it. Once that, if if they've managed to get a small portfolio acquisition done, they've then found it difficult to move, you know, further down um, that that path and continue to acquire. They're struggling for sure. But there's definitely you, you may disagree with me, but there's definitely one of the mid tiers who whose uh, share price has suffered and been a lot of selling when when you stepped in. And it, you know, and what I'm trying to work out is like, oh, what's gone wrong there? Is there any chance that that could happen in this in this case here? Are there lessons to be learned, or is it just a case of actually people just prefer your model to theirs? Well, I, you know, I, I can't speak to other people's models, but what I would tell you is we allocate capital expecting to get strong rates of return. Uh, we're growing our business, growing the net asset value on a per share basis of our business, whether it's through the acquisition of peer companies, whether it's the acquisition of individual royalties. Uh, we do so expecting to get a rate of return. We'll run our business as well as we can. And, and what other people do is really up to them. 